We started the service off by invoking your presence, and we're grateful that you oblige us as we invite you to come and to be with us in this special way. We ask even now as we read and look at your word that you would speak to our hearts and to our lives, that you would work against any resistance that's there, the busyness, tiredness, preoccupiedness of our lives, that you would work in and that you would grow in our hearts things that honor you and that there would be a fruitfulness that's born out of reading and listening to your word. And so that's our prayer this morning, that your spirit would attend to your word in the heart and the life of your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark in our Monday morning Bible studies. And uh, Bible study. And, and so we passed this a little bit ago. I thought this is a great passage to take up this first Sunday of the new year. 1 through 20. This is the parable of the sowers. You might be familiar with it. It's a, it's a familiar parable. Uh, you'll find it also in Matthew and also in Luke. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 20 this morning. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose and it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And a response to the word of God is, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
Well, I don't know what you do at the turn of a year, the end of a year. Do you evaluate? It's a good time at least to evaluate and assess the past and look to the future. My wife and I have a practice of doing that. And sometimes that evaluation is good and sometimes it's, it's not so good. But it's always hopeful to some extent. And I remember as a younger man, uh, wanting to try to quantify, right, what had happened the year before and, and, and quantify the growth in my life and the fruitfulness and the words of this parable, 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. Is there some sort of growth that I could quantify? But somehow over the course of years, that growth and that fruitfulness became a little more difficult to identify. In some years you wonder, have I grown at all? Have I gone backwards instead of forwards? And I found myself in a, a state of mind as I come to the new year with, with this in mind, that I find myself thankful and grateful that I'm still believing. That, that I'm still bound to the truth that took a hold of me so many years ago, that I'm still standing in the faith. In spite of whatever else has happened, when I find belief in my own heart and a, a desire to hear from God and who He is, I'm thankful that He has stepped in and He's done something. And I, I'm amazed at that. And I'm grateful for that. Because as I read this parable, there's, there's a couple things that can happen, right? There's, there's fruitfulness that's intended by the sower. Quantified in various kinds of ways there. And I've experienced those kinds of things in my life. Character built in and fruit coming in and out of my life of God's work in my life. And, and, and I reflect on that. I go, I'm thankful for that. At the same time, I'm very familiar, not just with the good soil, but the other soils that are presented. The characteristics that they show. I find them at work in my life. I'm familiar with those as well. My susceptibility to those things. And so this morning, as we hear this familiar parable again, I want us to hear it and respond to what it has to say. I'd like just to read it and say, we're all just the good soil. Let's go home, right? We're all we're a church on a Sunday morning. You're starting the year off right. You must be the good soil. Let's go home. But I'm afraid if we end up there, that we're going to misread or we're going to miss something that the parable also has for us. I trust the fact that we're here means well in terms of our own intention and God's work in our own hearts. But there's a kind of a framework. There's a, we need to see as well these other soils and learn from them to teach us about them. I think they become a kind of warning for us, a, a diagnostic to evaluate our life. And so this, this parable gives us both a hope for fruitfulness, but at the same time, a warning, a diagnostic, a disruption of our lives to put in front of us a picture of things that could be happening to learn and grow from and through this image that Jesus gives us. So I first want to look at that diagnostic, that disruptive nature of this, the warning that's inherent in this parable. But then I want to move from just the warning, if you will, from the bad news to the good news. That God's grace is at work in each one of us, drawing us in, at the same time, the hope that this parable gives to us, that there's a hope of fruitfulness in our lives. 
You might be familiar with uh, parables. Mark uses this particular section here. This whole chapter is about, is really set up with parables. It's the largest teaching section in the Gospel of Mark. It's his setting by the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is teaching the crowds. And we're told that he uses this, this framework, this, this uh, tool of parables to teach to the crowds. And he's sitting there in the boat as he's got this amphitheater set up as he's teaching to the people as they will hear. And he teaches in these, this form, this frame of parables. You might ask the question, what exactly are they? Are they just simply stories, kind of random stories that Jesus decided to tell people? I'm not sure that anything that Jesus did would be considered random, but they are stories, but they're more than stories. They're stories with a point, right? One person has said that parables are, an, are imaginative gardens with real toads in them. Imaginative gardens with real toads. So they're fictitious stories, but in them are real truths that we're to hear and draw from. They demonstrate a direct relationship between the natural world, the physical world, and the spiritual world. The redemptive order. where There's a natural relationship. It's almost as if Jesus created the world around us in order to teach us things about the spiritual world. And that's indeed what he does. He, in his creation, the very word of God, right? When he created the world, he made it in a certain kind of way. And as he comes and he teaches, he uses the natural world, the physical world that he made to teach us about the reality of the redemptive order, about God's operation in our lives spiritually. So there's a ready-made object lesson that the Creator has put in place for Himself to use as He teaches these truths about the spiritual world. And so we're invited as we hear these parables, we're called into the story to listen and to hear. But as we're listening, we need to be mindful of something. We need to be mindful that we are bound to find ourselves in the parable. Because he doesn't just tell us stories for no reason, but we're going to be pulled in. We're drawn in to the story to teach us. We'll find ourselves there. Sinclair Ferguson, an author of some note, has said that Jesus' parables are meant to get under our skin. To reveal that our sin has created within us an irritation with God and his ways. And so as you read this parable or other parables and you find yourself just a little bit on edge, maybe a little bit irritated at what you're hearing that maybe reflects yourself, know that the parable is doing its work. That's the intention, is to reveal for us that we become irritated at how God has constructed his world and his own redemptive order. And so it gets our attention. And guess what it does? It helps us to see and to respond to things that we would be resistant to. And the story helps us to look at it and to to look through it and to learn about what's going on in us. So what exactly do we learn about in this parable? We see there's a sower and he has an intention, right, with his sowing as he sows the seed. It's to grow stuff, right? He wants to produce Grain. He wants to produce fruit. That's his intention that's here. In this particular parable, we have an explanation. That's one of the unique things about this one. It's kind of, in that way, kind of a, a framework or a paradigm to understand the, the parables themselves. But the first section is the parable. Then the last section of what we read is the explanation. That Jesus kind of walks through it 
for those who are closest to him. And he explains the parable, kind of walks through point by point. And we learn that the seed that's sown, it's the word, right? It's, it's the word of God. And we might say, is it Jesus as the word or is it what he is saying or the words? And the answer to that question is, would be yes. He sows himself. He sows what he's doing, what he's saying. That's what he's planning. And so there's a, there's a seed that's sown. It's the word. And then we have these different soil conditions, right? There's three, four total different soil conditions that he presents to us, which remind us that everybody responds differently to the word. They respond differently to what they hear. But what's interesting is that the parable doesn't really tell us exactly who the sower is. Now, that's not hard to gather, Right? It's not hard to discern who exactly who is the sower. He happens to be the one who's sowing. Happens to be the one who's speaking. Happens to be the word of God who's come. And so the sower comes and his intentions, Jesus that is, his intentions are exactly the same as the sower in the parable. His desire is to sow and to produce fruit. And to see fruit come out of the seed that's sown. But also the conditions in which he is working and operating are the same as the parable, right? The conditions are the same, that everybody responds differently to the words as he shares them. So he's the sower bringing this about. And it might be important or helpful for us if we think about this particular parable and the way Mark frames it in his gospel, is that Mark has a particular interest in framing and he places it right in the context of a lot of opposition, that Jesus presents this parable of all these varying responses to the word in the context of opposition. If you read chapters 2 and 3, you'll find much opposition to who Jesus is, what he says, what he does. No one quite gets him. And in fact, every many seem to be in opposition to him. And right in the middle of this section, Mark writes and says, see this, these responses of these are exactly what we see in this parable. And then we're called to respond. The one call really in the middle of this is this characteristic word, uh, this phrase that Jesus uses. He, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that doesn't mean whether you can hear or not, right? Exactly whether you know the sound waves can make it to your eardrum, but rather the one who hears is the one who does. The one who hears is the one who actually responds to what he's hearing and does something with it. So as we come to this parable this morning, I want to first look at this warning that's present, that's inherent in the other the three soils that he represents. There's a warning that's present in this, this diagnostic and disruptive parable. As in the natural world, and it emulates the redemptive order, there's four outcomes and three of them are not good. By the way, you don't have to be a farmer to know this. If you've tried to grow anything at all, you know that every seed you, pl- you plant doesn't produce what you hope. If you've tried to grow grass in your yard, you know that you have to scatter a lot more grass seed if you want to get just a little bit. And so there's failure that's inherent in the process in the natural world as a result of the curse. And so as a result... There's three things that happen that are not good and one that is. So what happens to the seed? And we're told about that, right? There's the path, which is the one soil here. It's a hardened 
soil. And on this hardened soil, the birds come and devour the seed. The second soil we have here is the rocky soil. And lest you think it's just kind of filled with rocks, exactly the idea is more of this. In the, the day and age, there would be more of like a underneath a, a small or a short layer of, of soil would be a, um, a little shelf of, of rock. And so what would happen in that short part of soil, there would be a there would be growth that takes place, but because of the rocky shelf that's underneath it, that would prevent any depth of the root system to grow or to develop, and so it would be stopped there. But then the third soil is this thorny soil, right? That as it begins to grow up, other weeds begin to kind of grow in and around it, that's kind of sucking the life out of it. And again, you... You don't have to be a farmer to know this or even have a yard. If you want to go to the south lawn here of the church, about the middle of July, you'll find a little bit of grass that's been choked out by lots of dandelions and a lot of crabgrass. Has grown in, and what happens to the grass? It gets choked out. The life of it is gone. But then there's the the fourth soil, the good soil that he talks about. In my own yard this last fall, I tried to overseed and I we bought a ton of seed. And I'm always surprised where the grass grows. And you'll find you know you you kind of see generally consistently, but there'll be this little patch of grass like this where there feels like there's a thousand seeds growing there. And for some reason, that's good soil, and it's producing a lot of grass. Meanwhile, vast parts of my yard feel barren because the seed hasn't grown there. And there's good soil that produces a great harvest. I wish my whole yard did that, but it doesn't. And so in these three soils, the first three, there's a warning that's inherent there. And the the language even tells us about that. What caught me this last kind of time of reading through this were this, the language, these words in the parable, devoured, scorched, withered, choked. That the hard soil, that seed that fell was devoured by the birds. That the, that the, on the rocky soil, it was scorched when the sun came out and it withered away. You see the pictures that are presented in the story itself? See, there's violence that's done to the seed. The potential is there for growth, but rather it's violated. And what happens is that it dies, it's scorched, it's choked, it's literally strangled. That's there. And so we see even as we read this, this warning that's in the picture. There's a real warning for us to hear and to see in our own lives as the word comes, what happens to it. And there's violence done there. And this warning is a, a diagnostic for us to set our own, assess our own heart condition. What's going on in us? Because last time I checked, my heart condition is not static, but it's rather dynamic. Constantly changing up and down, day in and day out. I wish it were the same, but it's not. And so the conditions of my heart move and ebb and flow. And so this is a warning to go... What's going on? To check and to assess exactly where I happen to be at any given point. Lest we be susceptible to the conditions and characteristics of these other soils. So the question is, what do we learn about the other soils that are helpful for us? Well, the first, this, this hardness, the, the path, there's a hardness that's there that can reflect the heart that has a, a tendency 
to be redundant, re, um, resistant to the word of God. Right, the picture, right, the, the soil or the, the seed just lands on the soil and the birds come and devoured. It's, they're gone and we're told in the explanation that it's Satan who comes and devours and steals the word of God even before it can have any effect. It shows that because of the hardness of the soil, it's there. Well, what generates hardness? Where does the hardness come from? Well, there may be a lot of different things, but as we look at the world around us, we understand there's people who are hardened by their own anger or rebellion against God. Right? Their, their fists are raised against Him, whether He exists or not, right? They don't want God messing around in their lives. They certainly don't want His rules or His perspective or His reality imposing on theirs. And there's a hardness that comes in this anger, in this rebellion, this resistance against them. But hardness also comes in the way of an apathy that can grow. In our culture, I think that describes a lot, right? There's an apathetic response. Even if there were a God, I don't need Him, right? What, what, what business, what, what, what use can He be? My life is fine. You know, I need... God in my life like I need a hole in my head. He just is not terribly useful. And there's this apathetic kind of mindset that just seems to permeate our culture. But there's also a hardening that comes through a kind of inoculation. You know what an inoculation is, right? It's when you're given just a little bit of the disease to prevent the the full-blown disease. And for many in this particular culture becoming post-Christian, right? They've tasted just a little bit of what's called Christianity. Maybe it's a good taste, maybe it's a bad taste, but it's just enough to inoculate them from the real disease, from the real thing called the Christian faith. And so this hardness we see presented here in many different ways in the culture around us. But it's important also that we not just look at the people around us and then out there, but to recognize that these characteristics can also reflect us. They can also represent us, that we are susceptible to the same kinds of things, right? There's a hardness that can grow subtly and insidiously in our own lives at our anger, right? And of course, in my life, I've noticed this. There'll be seasons of life where I'm just... There's just this low-grade anger that's kind of there. And I realize I don't like the way God is running the world. I realize I'm a little bit irritated at the way that He is shaping the world, the way He is at work in my own life, on a macro level or on a micro level. And there's this kind of this anger that's there. And that anger can be kind of a hardening effect, have it on my own life, such that I don't receive, I can't hear the Word of God and who He is. And so one of the things that's important is just to see it and to name it and go, I'm angry. I don't like the way that God is running these things. And just to be honest, but the beauty is that even in that, the goal isn't just to, you know, we can't tell, can't tell myself just don't be angry, right? That, that's really helpful to say don't be angry, but rather to follow the form that the Psalms give us, the Scriptures give us. The psalmist reminds us, pour your heart out to God because He cares for you. So the invitation is in that anger. And in those, those moments and those times where we don't like the way God is running things, by the way, God likes His job. By the way, God's pretty good at His job. We need to learn that, but, but to pour our hearts out to Him. But also, 
There's an apathy, right, that sets in that we can experience in our days. A lethargy, a, a kind of complacency that just kind of creeps in that can bring a spiritual numbness over us. But then there's also this inoculation that can happen too. You know, we get just a little bit of our Christianity and we go, well, I don't want to get too serious about this. I don't want to go too far. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to be a, a fanatic about this. And so we want to make sure we, we moderate and be very careful of, of our Christian faith. I don't want to get too serious. It shouldn't demand too much. And here I turn to my friend C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, this fictional account of this senior tempter demon as he's writing to his nephew about how best to tempt his subject. He writes this, this subject has just become a Christian and this is the advice. A demon to a demon, okay. He says, if you can um, talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. A moderated religion is as good for us, the enemy, as no religion at all, and it's more amusing. You see, a little inoculation in our own lives, we go, which is moderate? And what we see is that creates and cultivates a hardness, prevents us from really hearing who God is, hearing the word that he has for us. This hardness prevents this growth and his word won't prevent, um, penetrate us. And the devil comes in and he devours the word of God. And so for us, right, this, this model, this picture gives us a picture of hardness that we need to be aware of. And the author of Hebrews has this warning to his hearers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beware of hardness of heart. The second soil. We see this picture of superficiality of the rocky soil. Shallowness of the rocky soil. Right, This one springs up. It looks like early growth, but it doesn't last because it has no real depth in it. Mark uses this characteristic language throughout the book, the Gospel of Mark. He uses the word immediately something like 45 times. But in verse 16, he says, immediately they receive the word, but then immediately they fall away. So it's quick growth, but it's not lasting. When the heat of life comes, which it inevitably will, they're scorched and they wither. And the seed doesn't grow. There's no depth of soil there for it to truly to grow. You probably know people like this. I have a memory, a, actually a specific memory of a young man who had professed faith in Christ. We were working with Campus Crusade, now crew, a number of years ago. And this young man, had, was, he was on fire, as they say, in his faith. But then he began to talk about his faith to some people who didn't care too much for it. And he was gone. Not to be found. And we see that picture, that shallowness, when difficulties come, that prevents the growth that's there. So how do we respond to the heat in our lives? The word tribulation that Jesus uses here, when tribulation or persecution arises, tribulation literally means pressure. Pressure comes. The heat comes in our lives. 
The word persecution literally means to be chased after. We become chased in that respect. And, and so when this reality comes, when we feel the pressure, when we feel the heat, how do we respond? And the truth is our response to the heat, to the pressure in our lives, tells us, reveals to us our depth or our lack thereof in our lives. So I'm going to make a generalization, which we should always be careful of, right? When you make these broad, sweeping generalizations about a group of people. But I'm going to do this. Feel free to qualify this generalization as it's useful or helpful for you, because I don't want anybody to shut me off. But here's the generalization. My characterization is that Americans in the 21st century are generally susceptible to being shallow. I see a few head nods. (laughs) I speak primarily from the evidence of my own life, that we are susceptible to superficiality. We don't like heat. We don't like pressure. We certainly don't want anybody chasing us. And so we find ourselves in this place where we are superficial. Our love over the conveniences and the comforts of life. And that's what we go after, and that's what makes us, keeps us shallow. Now, if you've ever had the opportunity, which I'm sure you have, to talk to somebody in the States or overseas who has truly suffered, who's truly walked through circumstances in their lives that are, that are incredible to hear, and have stood and walked with Christ through those who have suffered persecution, who have suffered in ways you can't imagine. That's not minimizing our own sufferings and challenges. But it's humbling to hear their lives and the depth of their faith. As you interact with them, this summer I had the uh, opportunity to, to preach in, in Ukraine. Kropovinsky, Ukraine was the town. I think, isn't that right, Kelly? Our family was there and they invited me to preach. Well, in Ukrainian, this particular form of the church we were in... They have four sermons that are given. And so I'd sit there and there'd be one sermon. And I'm going, am I up yet? No, you're, you're, you know, there'd be another sermon. And I was the fourth sermon in a row. And the, the, the translator was telling us the message of each of the sermons. And I got to tell you, by the, by, by the time it was time for me, I was ready just to kind of fall over in a puddle. When I heard these men talk about firsthand memories of suffering that they as a church, as a people, had undergone. And I go, why am I preaching? I liked my sermon. I think it was a pretty good sermon. But what they spoke with and the depth and understanding was a completely different level than mine. We are susceptible to this superficiality in our lives. Who really knows what 2019 will hold for us individually or corporately? Church big C, church little C, grace church. Who really knows? But we are bound, corporately or individually or both, to experience heat, pressure. In some ways being chased as a result of following Christ. We're bound to experience that. And the temptation in those times... Or to fall away, to shrink back from living upon and holding tightly to what God has said. Essentially being shallow or superficial is exchanging one love for convenience and comfort in exchange for something else. We exchange our love for Christ for this love for convenience, for this love for comfort. 
In one respect, all three of these soils reveal a kind of idolatry of exchanging our loves for something else. It's there. But this one in particular, we exchange it for convenience. Simply because we suffer from superficiality doesn't mean that we have to remain there. That's the hope, right? I've made the broad statement, we suffer from superficiality, but we don't have to remain there. And the beauty is the sower will see to it that we don't remain shallow. He will bring into our lives conditions such that it will force depth to be cultivated. For the rock shelf underneath us to be broken such that the root system can go below that. That will be his intention as he wants to produce fruit in our lives. He will do it and only he can. But awareness of our wrongly ordered loves and our, must be understood at the same time we must repent of them. And step into the test that he, the sower has for us. And to see the growth that he brings in us. In the midst of the difficulties of our lives. Tim Keller said this. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I have a hunch that somehow that's what Jesus does in each of our lives. The sower to remove those things so that we realize, oh yeah, he's all we really have. There's a hardness that prevents the word of God from penetrating. There's a rocky soil that prevents growth. The third soil gives us a picture of the the plant that's literally choked out by a divided heart. This one seems hopeful, right? It starts, it's growing, it seems to be kind of going along pretty well, but then something happens, right? Other things come into the soil and and grow up in it. Other things are growing. And what's happening when those other things come alongside it? They're stealing the vitality of that growth, of that productivity, of that plant. Jesus says it's thorns. Might be crabgrass here, whatever you want to say, but they begin to choke out and strangle the life by dividing its life. Dividing it among a lot of other things. And Jesus gives us a picture of what some of those things are. The question that I've had in this parable is, well, is this plant, is it alive or not? Is it alive or not? But Jesus has a better question. He has a better question to answer. The point, though, is whether it's alive or not, it's not productive. That this soil that's bound by thorns, that it's unproductive. It doesn't produce fruit. And for Jesus, what's important, and the same thing is to be alive, is to produce fruit. That's his interest So what are these thorn bushes? What are these things that choke out the fruitfulness in our lives? I don't know about you, but as I read this particular one in the list that Jesus gives us of the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, I just don't need a lot of explanation. I don't need a lot of application because I can look at my own life and I see how all of these things steal and choke out the vitality of my spiritual life. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, right? None of these things are necessarily evil in and of themselves, right? These cares are there. The riches themselves are not evil. Any of these desires, that's not what's 
What's wrong here? But none of these things are, are evil. But we see these, these cares that choke out and steal our life. This last two weeks, my computer went on the fritz about two weeks ago. And I can't tell you how distracting it's been trying to write a sermon without my computer. It's like, how, how did the people survive after this? And I realized it just, it just divided my attention. Is that a bad thing? No, it was necessary, but it was just the reality of the world in which we live. The deceitfulness of riches, the things that we want and we long for, we hope that it'll give to us. First Timothy, Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 9 to, to Timothy, and he says to those who are rich in this world, he says, but those who desire to be rich, right, who, who, who fall after this, they, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This deceitfulness of riches lures people away. It lures our hearts away, looking for life in those places. It divides our vitality and our life such that there's no fruit that's there. I heard a statistic this last week, and I'm always careful about statistics that can kind of prove lots of things. This one, though, in particular caught me. It was convicting to me. And this was the statistic. It was comparing the average giving of Christians in the Great Depression to the average giving of Christians today. And the, this report showed that the Christians in the Great Depression gave more than the average Christian today. Three, just over 3% in the Great Depression. Whoever took these numbers, I don't know. Just under 2% today. Poorest season in our country, potentially richest, wealthiest. Riches are deceitful. I find it in my own heart. I find myself drawn in that direction. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for the cares of the world. Watch out for the deceitful and riches. Watch out for the cares, the desires for other things. Right? You fill in the blank. What is that for you? I don't know. I know what it is for me. Again, it's not about the desire being evil, but it's the degree to which that desire overtakes a greater desire, a greater love. That's the problem here, is that this desire steals the life and the vitality of our life in Christ. And the question for us this morning is, do we understand these? Are we aware of the degree to which we are distracted and divided by all these things, even the good things? And what Jesus is doing, he's showing us in the image of this parable the ways that this can, the life can be stolen from us, can be choked out, not by evil things, but, the, but by the abundance of good things that we have, by the wholehearted pursuit of these other things that are there. But he goes on to remind Timothy, right, of this, this picture in that passage I read earlier. He goes, on, he goes on to say, now, remind those who are rich in this world, which, by the way, is all of us. They're rich in the world not to put their hope in riches, which will come and go, but rather put your hope in God. Because in him, one, you will have treasures in heaven if you do. But secondly, you will find the life that is truly life. That in that you will truly find what life is and where it comes from. And as we're enabled to become unentangled by the enchantment of these things of what this world offers, the life of Christ will continue to grow in us. 
It will address that issue of bondage to those things. And so this parable is a diagnostic. It's disruptive for us. It helps us to see the susceptibility of these things, the hardness of heart, the, the rocky soil in which we're shallow. And then finally, this, the things that choke out the life. But lest we think that it will be by our power, or our ability, or our observation, our perception alone that will rescue us, Jesus reminds us in a very disruptive way in the middle of this section that it's not something we can do to produce. We need to be aware of the way it affects us, but we can't produce what needs to be produced. It has to be by His grace that He draws us in to truly see who He is and to hear and to receive His words. Now, the verses in the middle of this, 10, 11, and 12, there's a lot in here, but there's really one point that I want to make in this message this morning. 10 and 11, in the middle of, between the parable and the explanation, Jesus gives the purpose. And he says, and when he was alone with those around him, the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those on the outside, everything is in parables. And you see this purpose is this concealing and revealing. And he uses this language of outsiders and insiders. To those outside, everything's in parables. And here's what's important to understand about that language. In the context of the Gospel of Mark, you need to know that one of the things as you read through the whole Gospel is that there's only two people or two groups of people that are insiders. And by an insider, I mean those who get Jesus, right? Those who know who He is, right? Who who understand who Jesus is. And the one is Jesus Himself. But the other one in the book of Mark who gets Jesus, they don't respond rightly, are the demons. That the demons are the ones who are insiders. They know who he is. And everybody else in the, in, the, in the gospel is in the process of moving from the outside to the inside or pushed. To be revealed, to understand who Jesus is, or to be concealed. And so, in one respect, everyone else is outsiders. And it's only by the grace of Jesus' teaching, his patience, the, if you will, the parables that he uses. His own disciples are shown throughout the gospel to be slowly moving in, right? The, the picture comes together, the puzzle comes together as they begin to see, oh, this is who he is. And they become, they move from outsiders to insiders. How? By receiving and hearing and responding to what Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. And so there's this movement from, in, from outside to inside. And so in that respect, we all begin on the outside. And it's only by God's grace and his goodness that we can see and hear any of these things. That any of this makes sense. And here's this work of God that must happen in us. There's a warning, but there's a grace that's here as we hear it this morning that draws us in and we respond. But then I want to finish this morning with this final question. The final soil, right? The, the fourth soil. It's the one we, we love. It's the one that gives us the hope in verse 20. When Jesus explains it, he says, but those that were sown, those seeds that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. It's the good soil. And the question for us this morning is, how is it that we have any hope of being good soil? 
How is it that we have any hope of being fruitful in any way, shape, or form, 30, 60, or 100-fold? How is it, where does that hope come from? We certainly know it's not in and of ourselves. If you heard last week, Ryan talked about the, the power of the voice of the Lord. And he uses an example in Genesis chapter 1 at creation when the voice of the Lord spoke and that common refrain throughout Genesis 1, and it was. He spoke and it was. I'm going to add to that refrain and God says, and it was, and it was good. When God spoke, he brought creation into existence, but he not only pronounced that it was, he pronounced goodness. And for us, as we look at our own lives, if we have any hope of our soil, of our lives, of our hearts being good, it must come by God's, the power of His Word to speak and to transform our hardened, rocky, thorny soil into good soil. That's the only hope that we have that He can speak and to bring goodness out of what we bring to Him. And that's the hope that we have from this parable. The hope is that he will speak and make it good. Our, our hope is anchored in this reality that he will bring this about. This is, by the way, the good news of the kingdom. The power of his word will do this. So our hope is anchored in the faithfulness of God and his promises that he sealed and secured by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, by the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself, the word who came to sow among us and to produce fruit in our own lives. As we come to the table this morning, just a question we think about, again, the new year before us and the question about standing and wanting to be good soil, even in the context of understanding that there's an opposition, there's an enemy who hates us. There's a world around us who opposes God and there's our own hearts which we know to be soil that doesn't readily receive his word. So how can we have any hope at all of standing firm in this word in 2019 or 2020 for any of that? Clinging in the end to the truth of who he is in the midst of our opposition. Well, here's the conclusion to this parable. The hope is that there's a harvest that he gives to us. This harvest is that there will be a fruitfulness. That's there, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, this harvest isn't just at the end of 2019. It's not just at the end of 2020. The harvest that is being presented in this parable is a, par- a parable that presents the harvest in that day. At the end of days, when all the days have run out, we will stand before him and we will find good soil. Not just for a year or two years, but for eternity, and from that soil that he has cultivated in us will come fruit, fruit that's born for eternal life in our own lives and the lives of others, fruit that will last forever. And as we come to the table this morning, this table represents for us the ground of this hope, the hopefulness that we'll stand in that day and that we'll find good soil. And we see this picture before us, this ground that, that God has fulfilled his promise, that he is faithful to send Jesus. And so in the table, we see the body and the blood of Christ represented and they're emblems for us of God's faithfulness. And we come to remember what he has done. We come to, to celebrate what he has done. At the same time, we come to receive 
the grace that we need today. The grace to break up the rocky soil, the hardness that there, to, to address the issues of the own, the, of the things and the cares of the world that steal the life and vitality in our life, to become, if you will, to take another step in moving to become an insider, to see Jesus, to know him, to respond to him. And so, as we come to this table, remember that on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he, and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. After he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we do this, as we eat of this bread, as we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we do this, we proclaim his faithfulness to make us good soil. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, (laughs) that that you can do what we can't. Thanks for the pictures and the images, the diagnostic of, of seeing our hearts. But thank you for your powerful word that speaks. And we respond. Father, I pray that you would work in each of our lives, that as we come to this table this morning with faith, that we would be again, be able to see clearly who you are. That you would draw us in from the outside to see and know you and that you would sustain us, that you would grow even today another step in understanding what good soil looks like and to address the issues that can be characteristic in our lives as a individually and as a congregation as well. Would you... Do that, Father. Would you make us good soil that would grow fruit that will last for eternity? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.